FM, this is KPFT Houston. And now, Houston's only primetime radio program dedicated to news and concerns of the lesbi, gay, and transgender community. This is Queer Voices. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston is currently presenting a virtual film series while its in-person screenings have been on hiatus due to the coronavirus pandemic. One of the highlights of the film screening in July is Proud, which was originally created for French television. It chronicles four decades of queer life in France, seen through the lens of three generations of one family. The drama spans from 1981, when homosexuality was illegal in France, to today, where the French TQ community has achieved marriage equality. The Cahiers du Cinéma, the world's best film magazine, called Proud, quote, one of the most exciting series of the year, unquote. The French newspaper, The Parisian, said that Proud is, quote, a series that defends the fundamental rights of gay people. The film Proud is available for streaming July 8th through the 22nd at mfah.org slash virtual cinema. We are pleased to welcome back to Queer Voices, Marion Luntz, the museum's curator of film and video. Over the last three decades, she has built the museum's film series into one of the most popular programs at the museum. In 2014, Houston Press named her Houston's Best Curator, observing, to be as successful as she is, Marion Luntz has to have the rare combination of an artistic eye, an encyclopedic knowledge of film movements, genres, directors, and actors past and present, and a sensitivity to cultural sensibilities, end quote. In 1996, Marion was one of the founders of the Houston Gay and Lesbian Film Festival, which is today known simply as QFest. Marion, welcome back to Queer Voices. Hi, I'm very glad to be here, and, and, and thank you very much, Andrew, for uh, that great introduction, and to everybody for uh, tuning in to talk about movies. So tell us about this French television series, Proud. What is it about? Okay, well, first, I wanted to just do a slight correction. It's actually opening in our virtual cinema on uh, July 15th. Um, we have been opening movies uh, on Wednesdays in our streaming platform, and we can get into that a little bit more. Uh, so Proud is, uh, as you said, uh, made for French television. It's actually perfect for binge-watching. It is a three-part drama that follows uh, the individuals, in particular uh, our hero, Victor, uh, over a period uh, from the age of 17 when he came out to um, into his 40s, I would say, uh, and uh, about uh, how his life and his experiences parallel uh, the evolution of uh, gay rights in France. And it's directed by Philippe Faucon. He is a, a Moroccan-born filmmaker who has had some success with uh, feature films before. And in this case, just like lots of filmmakers, he decided to go into the uh, series 
series mode of filmmaking. So it's perfect for binge watching because it's three segments. Your ticket buys you three segments and each runs about 45 or 50 minutes and they take place at different points in Victor's life. Uh, it's very emotional. It is poignant. Uh, you will see a lot of, of the themes that we are all very familiar with that, um, you know, start uh, not just with his coming out, but uh, with someone, uh, main character becoming HIV positive uh, to uh, wanting to adopt a child, uh, gay marriage, um, uh, the fluctuations of politics early in the film, the, the parents of Victor are socialists and Mitterrand gets elected to great acclaim uh, early in the film and becomes a more open society for a period of time. Uh, but uh, what's really great is that the characters are absorbing. Many of them are quite hunky or uh, attractive, the women. And uh, you really get caught up in what is going on uh, with Victor and the people who are uh, in his access. So uh, really very absorbing and, and a great watch. I highly recommend it. And the video preview that I online it's also very sensual and erotic in a way that maybe mainstream american television isn't in terms of they don't hold back on depicting gay male sexuality or sensuality that's exactly right there are some uh, very romantic scenes there uh, are uh, uh, just incredible uh, characters who come together and partner come apart then come back together uh, there is uh, very significant content about the acceptance by Victor's parents and his father in particular, which was a really hard plot on Victor's part. And uh, it, 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 and I won't, I don't want to do any spoilers, but uh, really good acting on the part of, of the actor who plays the father. Uh, I wanted to mention for the film geeks that there is a brief role uh, portrayed by Chiara Mastriani. She is the daughter of Catherine Deneuve and uh, Marcello Mastriani, the great Italian actor and French actress. So um, really nice to see her. She was actually in a French movie we showed in our streaming series uh, a few uh, weeks ago called On the Magical Night. So is it rare that a television film or series like Proud is released internationally by a major distributor? I'd say yes. So I think this is very much speaking to the moment. And I, and I spoke with the, the distributor, and I wanted to do a shout-out to our friend. It, it's coming from a company called Kino Lorber, which is a great distributor of art house movies across the U.S. and has pivoted to the uh, streaming moment. And their head of press and publicity is a native Houstonian, David Nin, who is a, a proud uh, uh, out Asian man, and uh, he... Maybe he doesn't have anything to do with the acquisitions, or maybe he does. He's really happy that uh, he was able to uh, encourage them to acquire this. And in the interest of offering something different, because we all know that there are is a lot of content out there, whether it's a film or television or, or other things that we can watch from home, I think it was very uh, astute of them to come up with something that appeals to our binge-watching nature and uh, to put this film uh, into the virtual cinema so that it, it is it's playing all over the country in multiplexes, museums, art houses, uh, and was released to coincide with, with Pride Month, but um, it's going to be uh, coming out uh, over the coming weeks of July. And if you've just joined us, we are speaking with Marion Luntz. She is curator of film and video at the Museum of Fine Arts, Houston. From July 15th through the 22nd, the museum will be offering the television French, uh, the French television series Proud, focusing on gay life from 1981 to today in France. Uh, Marion, Proud is not the only thing that the museum is presenting right now. 
why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, the exhibition Soul of a Nation and the uh, film series that you programmed, uh, the virtual film series as part of that exhibition. Sure, thanks for asking about that. Soul of a Nation, Art in the Age of Black Power opened at the museum uh, last week and it will be on view through August 30th. This is one of the exhibitions we were planning to open in April, but because of the quarantine, uh, the art was stuck in the previous museum and our museum was closed. And fortunately, we were able to uh, bring it to Houston, have it installed by, by our curator, Kenitra Fletcher, and it is in the, uh, the Beck building and the museum is open. I want to be sure that listeners are aware that the museum has significant protocols in place uh, for limited numbers of visitors visitors into the building and into the galleries, but it's it's a great moment to be able to see art uh, with very few people around and experience this, this very timely show. Uh, and it has work by artists working from the 60s uh, through the 80s. And in addition, there's a special section and spotlighting work from the Art Museum's collection that features Houston and Texas artists, African-American artists from the same period. Uh, so just a very riveting, uh, visually striking exhibition. I encourage everyone to, to take a chance to see The Soul of a Nation, and, and you'll want to go more than once. So just, just uh, find out more on our website site mfah.org. Uh, so we wanted to show films by filmmakers who were working in the 60s, 70s, and 80s and were uh, concerned with some of the same themes as the artists in the exhibition, uh, civil rights, black power, identity. And so we have programmed some films uh, uh, from the period and a few more recent documentaries about individuals. Like right now we're showing a documentary about Ella Fitzgerald. We're about to open one about John Lewis, people who have uh, dealt with uh, issues that are addressed in the exhibition, uh, racism, uh, segregated times. Uh, so uh, we have documentaries. We also are showing some films that were made in UCLA, at UCLA uh, Film School in the 70s. There was a period called the LA Rebellion that was really a movement of African-American independent filmmakers uh, who came together and made some amazing dramatic films in addition to documentaries. So we're showing uh, Killer of Sheep by Charles Burnett, Lesser Little Hearts by Billy Woodbury. Uh, we're also showing some films from the 80s that have been recently restored, uh, Cane River by Horace Jenkins, and his son will actually be in a live discussion about that film with Bun B, who is very knowledgeable about film. And then we're showing... And for people who don't know who Bun B is, tell us who Bun B is. Bun B is uh, an activist, a hip-hop artist, and someone who watches a lot of films and has been involved with discussions in our theater about film through the Houston Cinema Art Society. So I'll just say that the discussion with Sasha Jenkins and Bun B will be on uh, July... 28th, and we'll have information on our website listing for the film Pain River, and that film will be streaming uh, in the days leading up to that. There's a women-directed film by Kathleen Collins called Losing Ground that we're showing in August. We are also showing a documentary about Congresswoman Shirley Chisholm, who was the first woman to run for uh, the presidential nomination in 1972. It's called Chisholm 72, Unbought and Unbossed. And so we'll be showing that opening at the end of July. It'll be available for a month. And this definitely speaks to the times and the uh, conventions, the election season and the conventions that will take place this summer. 
And if you've just joined us, we are speaking with Marion Lunch. She is the curator of film and video at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston. Uh, there is a, an exhibition currently on view, Soul of a Nation, Art in the Age of Black Power. It will be on view through uh, August 30th. Uh, admission is uh, to the exhibition is free on Thursdays. So if you're interested in seeing that exhibition, you can see it for free on Thursdays. Marion, uh, the museum has always been very supportive of the uh, QFest, Houston's Gay and Lesbian Film Festival. Uh, can you tell us, do you have other uh, queer-themed films that you are considering programming that you can give us a little sneak preview of? Well, we have nothing confirmed, but thanks for asking about that. I'm, I'm very uh, honored to have been involved with QFEF since its inception. And it is going to have its 24th edition, we think, in the late summer. That hasn't been announced yet. And all of this, as far as I know, will be virtual. They A couple of years ago, they started a competition, and uh, so I believe that they will be showing shorts and features and documentaries that were submitted because at this moment that we're in, there are films that were completed before people weren't really able to make films and shoot films and be together shooting films. So they were able to benefit from that. I think like a lot of other festivals that are coming up, uh, queer festivals, including Outfest in LA, Frameline in San Francisco, uh, Aglyph in Austin. Uh, so festivals are able to show uh, films that were completed prior to March. Uh, and so we uh, certainly will let queer voices know, and, and I'll encourage QFest to, to let you all know when that's confirmed. But, but for sure, we would be showing relevant films in our streaming series. And, and I should just say, if people are surprised or confused, we have a lot of information on our website about the films that we're showing. And there's an FAQ about how to watch the films, because uh, you do have to go to a particular platform uh, to access these various films. So, Marion, you have been uh, programming films in person in the Brown Auditorium for almost three decades, and this pandemic has upended the traditional model that you've been working with. Can you talk a little bit about the pandemic's effects on uh, film and how it is shifting the paradigm uh, nationally and internationally? Absolutely. It, although people are, are bemoaning this, I think we have to see it as an opportunity and recognize that we all still love films and there are wonderful films that can be seen even if we can't be physically together in theaters watching them together and having the in-person introductions, discussions, laughter, screaming, any kind of reactions, people talking on their cell phones. Um, but... Um, uh, now, what's happened a lot are uh, watch parties, I would say. So if, if you wanted to get some friends together to uh, watch Proud and then uh, discuss it, even on, on Zoom, um, you can't watch it in, you know, live time together, but or you could text together, I suppose. Uh, but that's an opportunity, I think, uh, for engagement. And what I've seen a lot, uh, this is happening in Houston and nationally, is that there are discussions on, you know, all, all topics, of course, but around film, a lot of filmmakers, critics, scholars. I've tuned into discussions about films that were from L.A., New York, Chicago, Austin, and uh, you can you can find them on Instagram Live, on Facebook Live, YouTube Live, um, and a Zoom, of course. So I think that we uh, can still discuss films even if we can't be together watching them. Uh, and, and I think uh, looking ahead, what's being considered, because 
a lot of art houses will and movie theaters will be opening over the course of the summer, hopefully, uh, is what's being called a duplex model. So the, this opportunity to watch films in streaming platforms is not going to go away as, as generated by institution like, institutions like ours, but you'll just have the option. So if you are not comfortable for any reason being back in a theater, uh, you uh, hopefully will be able to see the same film or other films in, in other ways. I, I don't think that this moment we're in is going to go away after the, the vaccine for COVID um, happens. And if you are just tuning in, we are speaking with Marion Luntz. She is the curator of film and video at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston has reopened. It is open Wednesdays through Sundays. Thursday is its free day where you can obtain free admission between 11 a.m. and 8 p.m. The museum also has a virtual film series and from July uh, 15th through the 22nd, it will be screening the film Proud, which was originally created for French television and chronicles four decades of queer life in France. Uh, for more information about the uh, virtual film series, you can go to www.mfah.org slash virtual dash cinema. Marion, thank you for joining us. Thanks. It's great to be with everyone. I really have enjoyed being on Queer Voices for, for many years and uh, look forward to being able to see you in person and, and salute all of you and KPFT for keeping it going. This is Queer Voices. This week, the local musician songs we're going to be featuring is Cosmic Lover by Lou X featuring Stu and Christian Alexander. All three people are queer, uh, local Houston musicians. Oh, 
This is Queer Voices. Well, welcome to Queer Voices. Uh, we are recording this uh, a little bit earlier, but this segment will air on July ter- 13th on KPFT. And we're all here to sort of do a round table. And I think um, of our crew, I think the first thing we want to talk about is Election Day, which will be tomorrow as we're recording this. So, uh, Andrew, you wanted to mention this. Uh, what I think is really interesting on the 14th is that the election will actually uh, the election polls will be open from 7 a.m. till 10 p.m. that night, um, and that is is going to be great. I mean, I hate <laughs> I would hate to be a worker that day, uh, but it's great that uh, they're expanding the election time uh, for that. Um, now, I already early voted, and I was amazed at how well they kept the place safe and social distancing. Uh, I mean, every one of the, the uh, election machines was at least six feet away. Each one of the persons you talked to was separated. Um, you didn't actually hand them your license. They they just looked at it and was able to take a picture on their iPad. Um, and I think our interim uh, county clerk who is working on this, uh, Chris Collins, is it, um, has done a fabulous job. And if people want more information about where they can vote on Election Day, Tuesday, July 14th, you can go to harrisvotes.com. If you're interested in candidates who have been screened by the Houston LGBT Political Caucus, you can also download their endorsements at their website, which is thecaucus.org. This is a runoff election. Uh, one of the major races will be for uh, the Democratic Senate uh, Senate candidate who will challenge incumbent uh, Republican John Cornyn. There are two interesting candidates, uh, MJ Hagar, who is a, a, a veteran of the um, Afghanistan war and had a terrific record, including winning medals for her valor, and also uh, state senator, Texas state senator, Royce West from the Dallas area. He has a long history of uh, fighting for racial equality, uh, for promoting public education. Uh, And so there are two intriguing candidates. Uh, Interestingly enough, the uh, LGBT political caucus did not endorse a candidate in that race. So I and many others are uh, looking closely at that race uh, does anybody have any thoughts or comments on the Democratic Senate runoff? I was going to say they both seem. To, I've I've seen some of the debates that they've had and the, where they stand on a lot of issues. They're pretty. They seem to be pretty much the same on most most issues. I think a lot of people are going to go with electability. And uh, MJ has uh, got her name out all over the state way more than Royce was, even though he's been in a legislature for a while. But I think MJ has been working pretty hard to get her name all over. Uh, and especially pushing that uh, Joe Biden electability type of uh, uh, position of, of the vote for her. So it, um, I think they, they, they seem to be pretty much the same on a lot of issues. If uh, Ramirez or somebody like that would have got it, it would have been an interesting race. Uh, but these two are pretty, pretty, you know, they're pretty similar on a lot of it. But uh, so I think a lot of people are going to go with the electability. Who can get elected in the state? And that'll be interesting to see how that works out. Well, certainly MJ got a lot of national money. Yeah, yeah, she got a lot of national money and endorsements. A a very tough race. Um, And right now, at this point, it actually looks like on the presidential race that Texas has a possibility of turning blue. Uh, But the Senate race is going to be tougher than that race. 
I will say this. There was an interesting analysis in the Dallas Morning News of this particular moment in America where we are grappling with the systemic racism and the fact that Royce West has a long and venerable history of fighting for greater racial equality and how even though he may not have the financial resources that MJ Hagar has, that this might be a pivot moment and that it might give him an advantage because of his long advocacy for racial justice. I will also point out that Royce West, even though he's from Dallas, did win the endorsement of the Houston Chronicle, and they spoke of him in glowing terms. So when Houston steps up to endorse a Dallas candidate, you know there must be something special there. Yeah, and I think also part of the reason why MJ has got the bigger name recognition across the state is she just she hopped in earlier, and she just seemed like you know she got to you know sit down with Schumer and all of that, and he you know put her they the Democratic establishment hopped in very early to try to get a candidate in, and MJ was you know a military vet that doesn't present herself as like the typical politician, and so was able to get a lot of those endorsements kind of early from that. So I don't I think that just hopping in early was a big advantage for her. So not to say anything about Mr. West, what I was saying earlier. I think another interesting thing that I want to make sure comes up is what happened in the New York primaries that we had uh there's two congressional race there's a number of congressional races that got interesting uh, a lot of the media was talking about the AOC one but i don't think that was ever really any competition in that but the uh fi- the 15th and 17th congressional district in new york has uh retired uh people from the house of representatives have been in the seat for a long time it's i know the 15th i believe is the most democratic seat in the uh, house of representatives so whoever wins the primary for the democratic party will uh, almost certainly win and right now they still haven't certified everything because there's a lot of a lot of uh, counting from the absentee votes. But it looks like the two uh, people that are in lead are both uh, black gay men, and they'll be the first black gay men that'll be in the Congress. It's uh, Mondaire Jones from the set for the 17th, and Richie Torres from the 15th. And the 15th was also pretty interesting because it's uh, that is where a good bit of the Bronx is. And there's a family there that's pretty well known, the Diaz family. And the father is a Pentecostal pastor who is extremely homophobic and uh, has made waves and was in actually the New York City Council and made incredibly homophobic remarks and uh, has a son who's also in politics, who's the complete opposite, who's extremely liberal and supportive of the gay community. And people, what uh, it was catching uh, um, attention in the media because that race had so many people hopping in it that it had almost, almost had a Trump effect where you had about 10, 11 people who were not crazy uh, splitting up the vote and allowing this one guy to get all the kind of crazy people vote. And he was somewhat leading in the polls and people were worried that this guy was going to maybe win win because so much so much of the uh, um, not crazy vote I guess you could call it uh, was gonna uh, being split up into too many small parts uh, but it looks like he'll probably just be in third place also he's a his name is Ruben Diaz senior and his son is Ruben Diaz jr he decided to not add the senior so that and people were worried that they were going to confuse him with his son and also vote for you know vote for him get some votes off of that and so luckily none of that happened and Richie Torres is ahead and so it looks like Richie Torres and Mondale Jones will be the first black gay men elected to Congress so make sure I want to put that in there as well. I will say this I've watched some video interviews with uh, Richie Torres where he's been interviewed by the media 
He's so poised and so eloquent and so unflappable. He reminded me of a young Obama, the way that he was able to keep his uh, poise when they ask him tough questions. Uh, I think he has a very bright political future. And uh, if you haven't uh, seen him or learned about him, just Google Richie Torres and listen to some of his interviews because he is an incredible candidate. Yeah, I think the the New York the New York primaries this year because there were a couple of races. Uh, there was also the upset of uh, Elliot Engel, one of the uh, uh, a very uh, I think he'd been in Congress since the, the late '80s or early '90s. They were uh, it, it's the New York is finally breaking some of that uh, old guard of uh, Democratic establishment that AOC kind of first set the president with uh, breaking through, and now you have this new crop of uh, Democratic uh, uh, people, uh, politicians that are coming in that are younger and more liberal and uh, and kind of, you know, go across the range, but are definitely way more to the left than they, the Democratic establishment that was before that kind of got maybe a little um, little comfortable and they overly comfortable in their seat. Uh, and so, yeah, he's a part of that new, that new guard that's coming in. And so it should be interesting to see the future of Richard Torres, but a lot of those guys from New York, uh, a lot of people in general from New York that's coming out of the New York state. And shifting the focus to the elections uh, here in Harris County, one uh, election that is being closely watched is for uh, Texas House District 148. Uh, there is a runoff election for uh, the Democratic nomination for that particular position. Uh, it features a uh, longtime LGBTQ ally, Anna Eastman, and she is facing off against uh, Penny Shaw. And uh, there's been a lot of attention focused on that race. Many people may remember that Anna Eastman championed uh, the non-discrimination ordinance that was passed for the Houston Independent School District, uh, and she has been a longtime uh, ally of the LGBTQ community. Well, that race is really interesting because this is like, what, the fourth time that that sort of race has been going on because uh, Jessica Farrar resigned, uh, which left the seat open. So there was an election last, what, what last December or, or November, and then there was another election. So Anna Eastman is now serving in this term, but this is for the next year's term. Um, so um, and then there's another election in November. So that it's like that's really tough to have all those elections. Yeah, I saw uh, that Anna Eastman had posted on her Facebook page uh, that there had been something like four elections that she was uh, running in like over the last four months and how grueling that was. But uh, uh, she's so far won three out of the four elections and beat her Republican opponent for the interim position. So uh, she has a strong track record of winning elections and of public service to the community through her service as president of the Houston Independent School District Board uh, during happier times when uh, that board was much more functional and much more productive. Do we want to talk about Pride that just happened, Jack? Well, um, Pride did a, a video cast of their event uh, at the Legacy Room at City Hall, but I couldn't understand anything that they were saying. And I don't know if you saw or watched any of it, Andrew. I, I watched some of it. Oh, you did? Yeah. Um, it was very muffled. Yeah, it was really, really tough. And now, this was a last-minute event because originally they had scheduled a march. Well, originally there was a parade. <laughs> of course, the parade didn't happen, and they scheduled a march. But I was incredibly impressed that World Pride 
did, um, I think it was actually called Global Pride, did this video, and I didn't get to watch a lot of it, but I think it went on for almost a day, um, and they were featuring different uh, uh, countries and how they celebrated Pride, and the production value was just fabulous. Um, and I was like, wow, imagine being somebody growing up in the middle of nowhere, being able to watch this on the Internet and to see what a diverse, uh, incredibly large um, and people celebrating. Now, of course, all this was recorded mostly from your previous prides. But, uh, you know, I congratulate them, World Pride, for being able to uh, put this broadcast together. I don't know if it's archived, uh, but you might want to look it up, either Global Pride or World Pride, to see. Uh, and, you know, this was the 50th anniversary of the original Pride marches in New York and Los Angeles and a few other cities. Um, so it was unfortunate we couldn't do it this year, but they did a great job. I will say this. I got to watch the live broadcast of uh, the Houston Pride event. And I was really impressed that they were taking a firm stand for racial justice and affirming that Black Lives Matter. They had Mayor Turner speak, uh, and it was incredibly inspiring for me to hear our mayor say unequivocally that Black transgender lives matter. Uh, and it was great to see Pride take a strong position uh, at Pride Houston against police brutality, because for me, that was at the core of the Stonewall Rebellion, is you had corrupt, discriminatory, violent policing that resulted in a rebellion. And 50 years later, we're still having to fight that same battle. And kudos and hats off to the Pride Houston Committee for realizing this is still an incredibly relevant American issue. And we in Houston need to take a stand on that, because there have been six people who have been killed in officer-involved shootings over the last three months, and we still have not seen uh, uh, video footage uh, taken from the officers' uniforms of those killings. And so um, I was really impressed. I was also impressed that they decided to cancel all their in-person events for the rest of the year, but they are on Saturday, July 25th at 8 a.m. Uh, hosting Rights Are Human, which is an online conference that you can join, join through Zoom. And they say that they're going to feature interactive workshops addressing the LGBT community's intersectionality with aging, education, immigration, and gender. Uh, so I really salute Pride Houston for getting more political and for taking stands and fostering discussions about the crucial issues that we are facing, not only here in Houston, but in American society at large. I was also really impressed at their uh, video event that was streamed live from City Hall. Uh, they had placards that acknowledge George Floyd, who was murdered by the police officer in Minneapolis, who kept his knee on that poor man's neck for eight minutes and 45 seconds. They also had placards acknowledging Breonna Taylor, uh, the young woman in Kentucky who was a uh, healthcare worker who was shot by police when they invaded her home in a no-knock, uh, with a no-knock warrant and murdered her in bed. And for me, it was fantastic to see Pride acknowledging that we must recognize the 
problems with police brutality and racism, and that we must recommit ourselves to the struggle for racial justice and really spotlighting that even though this was a Houston event, that it had national connections and implications. Jack, what else is going on? Well, you know, um, we're all basically at home, <laughs> which is really tough. And, you know, we're here at the, doing this on the 3rd of July. Um, all, you know, the, the 4th of July celebrations are, are canceled or uh, being held on TV. Um, so it's it's a little bit tough. Now, we had a very interesting um, uh GLBT political caucus meeting this past Wednesday where uh, we have a new president. And, um, you know, we must thank Michael Webb for being president for two and a half years of the work he's done. But they're moving on. And uh, Catherine Lagan is now the new president, uh, at least for the next month. And then they'll have an election, uh, which is also the endorsement meeting, which is August 1st. And that's going to be a virtual meeting. Um, so uh, it's going to be really interesting to have a virtual meeting versus the in-person meeting for uh, an endorsement meeting of the caucus, but that's how we have to do it now. Um, so um, it, we'll, we'll see. I mean, um, that their virtual meetings have actually been pretty good, uh, but it's tough when you're trying to do uh, an endorsement meeting. And those will be the endorsements for the uh, presidential election in November. Uh, that will also be elections for a whole host of statewide positions, including the uh, House District 148 race that we were just talking about. So those are going to be really important series of endorsements. What's interesting, and maybe we can have someone from the caucus come on and discuss with the coronavirus pandemic, how has that changed the way that uh, traditional campaigns are run? How do you do voter outreach when you can't go and knock doors, which has been the tradition for decades in American political life. Uh, I attended a very interesting um, interview with candidate Ann Johnson, who is running to replace uh, Republican uh, State Representative Sarah Davis. She's a very impressive candidate, an out lesbian, an attorney, who has an incredible history of working against human trafficking king and standing up for uh, the sometimes underage victims of human trafficking who uh, have been caught in our criminal justice system. Uh, but that was a major focus of uh, her discussion and questions for her, which is what is the new game plan for running an election when so many of our traditional methods are closed off for campaigning because of the coronavirus pandemic? Brian, I know you have great experience with the Victory Fund. Maybe you can talk about some of the uh, trends that the Victory Fund is seeing and ways that uh, Victory Fund is responding to the new environment in which we find ourselves. Well, Ann Johnson is a major uh, endorsed candidate for the Victory Fund, and we did have a, a forum for her to come on and talk about her race. And, you know, the, the question is, do we support someone who's an ally that's a Republican ally, or do we support someone that's part of our community? And I think, you know, at the end of the day, we need someone that's good on our issues, but is part of our community that will represent us. And, with and so, so when you say uh, Republican ally, you're referring to Sarah Davis? Yes. And when you say someone from our community, you're referring to Ann Johnson, Ann correct? Johnson. Yes. And the, the mission of the Victor Fund is laser-focused on electing LGBTQ people to office. So it's a it's simple decision for us. Um, but I know that Sarah Davis has received endorsements from other organizations in our community. 
but we have to ask ourselves, you know, is it better to put one of our people into office or put in an ally? And I tend to go with electing our own community into office. Sarah Davis, she, you know, she, she be an ally, but she's definitely going to be under pressure being a part of the Republican party in Texas to vote, you know, vote the way that they want her to vote on certain issues when it comes up, and even I though think, she'll be an ally for us. And I think the big stake at issue right now is redistricting and getting democratic control of the state house. And there's nine seats that need to happen for that to, for it to go to the democratic side. And that is a lot of power in controlling the redistricting and electing Democrats into office. So I think that that's part of the, importance of her race. And so just to sort of make more explicit what you were talking about, Brian, if Sarah Davis is reelected as a Republican, she would most likely vote with the Republican caucus and could help them keep control of the redistricting process, which uh, has resulted uh, in Texas being extremely gerrymandered yes. and drawing the lines so that uh, they are very favorable to Republican candidates. Exactly. That's why this import, this race is very important for the state house. We're trying to flip this, the state house to the Democratic side for this election. One thing I will say that I think we as the queer community are seeing more and more is the importance of intersectionality and the importance of working as a coalition with other groups. And one thing that greatly concerns me about uh, Sarah Davis, even though she has been a strong ally to the LGBTQ community, is that she voted uh, in the past for uh, Senate Bill 4, yes. which was the racist show me your papers initiative uh, that put immigrants and basically Latino people who have brown skin uh, at the vulnerable, precarious position of being stopped and asked to show that they are uh, citizens and not undocumented immigrants. And uh, for me, that's a major strike against her. Uh, one other major strike against Sarah Davis is that she has received incredibly high ratings from the National Rifle Association. And I think that with the school shootings and the church shootings that we have seen in Texas, we need someone who's going to push common sense gun reform, not someone like Sarah Davis who voted to allow concealed carry uh, of guns on university campuses. So for me, there's a very clear choice with uh, that race for Ann Johnson, who has an incredible record as an attorney fighting against human trafficking. And I think we should say that KPFD does not endorse in elections. We do not favor candidates. We just present candidates that uh, align with our community and we allow them to talk about their positions. So if you've just joined us, we are talking about the Houston runoff elections. Those are going to be taking place Tuesday, July 14th. If you want more information on where you can vote in the municipal runoff elections, you can go to harrisvotes.com. If you are interested in candidates who have been screened by the Houston LGBT Political Caucus, their website contain, contains their slate of candidates who have been endorsed for the runoff. And you can go to their website at thecaucus.org. And if you haven't voted, please turn out on Tuesday, July 14th, and vote in the runoff election for the many critical races that will be decided uh, in that election. And I think that's about all we have time for today, guys. Uh, there was one thing I wanted to throw in real quick. Uh, the Stonewall Inn, like a lot of um, 
um, establishments, uh, bars and clubs, but especially the gay community who've been worried about closing was uh, po- had started a GoFundMe because they were worried about they were going to might have to close this historic place. And uh, they were able to raise, I don't know, in, in the hundreds of thousands. And so they definitely announced that the Stonewall Inn will definitely be uh, be able to stick around and uh, uh, through a lot of uh, donations, especially a large one from uh, a, a gay man who's uh, involved in tech and a foundation that he has. So I just wanted to talk, you briefly throw that out there as well. This is Queer Voices. I'm Christopher Gall. And I'm Lucia Chappelle. With NewsRap, a summary of some of the news in or affecting LGBTQ communities around the world for the week ending June 27th, 2020. A new law banning gender studies programs in Romania has academics, queer rights groups, and students in revolt. The legislation prohibits educational institutions from spreading theories and opinion on gender identity, according to which gender is a separate concept from biological sex. There was no public debate before the amendment to the education law was approved by Parliament last week. It mimics similar academic restrictions in neighboring Hungary and Poland. A statement issued by the University of Bucharest charged that the new law contradicts fundamental rights guaranteed by the Romanian Constitution and international conventions such as freedom of conscience, freedom of opinion, and university autonomy. Some professors there and at other universities vow to ignore the ban. Soon after the law passed, hundreds demonstrated outside the palace of President Klaus Johannes, Johannes is a politically centrist ethnic German, and he has already hinted that he does not approve of the legislation. Student organizations warned that the law would send Romanian education back to the Middle Ages. They've launched an online petition urging Johannes to veto the measure. Lawmakers in the lower house of Gabon's parliament voted this week to decriminalize same-gender sex. Approval was hardly overwhelming. 48 members voted yes, 24 no, and 25 abstained. The legislation repeals a provision in the penal code passed just last year that made same-gender sex illegal. That law punishes offenders with up to six months in prison and heavy fines. The bill's passage in the Senate is not assured. The ruling Gabonese Democratic Party is in the majority, but it's divided on the issue. One party MP in the lower house who voted against the bill complained that 48 deputies shake an entire nation and its habits and customs. President Ali Bongo Amdimba has not voiced an opinion. However, his wife Sylvia tweeted that Parliament is restoring a fundamental human right for its citizens, that of loving freely without being condemned, yes to dignity, no to hate. Gabon sits on the Atlantic coast of Central Africa. It's among 33 of 54 countries on the continent that outlaw same-gender sex. 73 countries worldwide do so as well. Most so-called crimes against nature laws are remnants of European colonialism. On the bright side, Human Rights Watch notes that six African countries have overturned their sodomy laws since 2012. A terrorist knife attack at a park in the southern England city of Reading made headlines this week. In most reports, the sensation of the word terrorism overshadowed the fact that the three men who lost their lives were gay acquaintances. James Furlong, Joe Ritchie Burnett, and David Wales were regulars at the Blagrave Arms, a queer-inclusive community pub. Wales was a scientist. 
Richie Burnett moved from the U.S. to the U.K. 15 years ago and worked at a pharmaceutical company. Furlong was a well-loved history teacher. It's being called a terrorist attack, but officials describe the 25-year-old Libyan refugee in custody as having problems with alcoholism, homelessness, and mental illness. He was arrested almost immediately at the scene. Witnesses told the BBC he had a massive knife and suddenly shouted some unintelligible words and went round a large group trying to stab them. The June 20th attack seems to have been random. Queer community leaders praised each victim as proudly gay and an active supporter of equality. More than 100 people gathered outside the Blagrave Arms on June 22nd to place flowers and mourn the trio. A GoFundMe page has been launched to raise money for their funeral costs. The election of MP Chancy Paik as Speaker of Parliament in Australia's Northern Territory made history this week. He's the first openly gay Indigenous lawmaker to lead any Australian parliament. Paik was chosen after the previous Speaker resigned in a corruption scandal. Paik said that his election sends a strong message for our young kids growing up. You have to believe in yourself and know that these are options for you in the future. Indigenous MP Nori Akit rose to fill Paik's former position of deputy speaker. If their Labour Party maintains its majority in territorial elections in August, the unprecedented dynamic First Nation leadership duo could be re-elected to full terms. The new speaker was first elected to Parliament in 2016, despite a smear campaign telling Aboriginal voters not to support Paik because he's gay. He said at the time, I am eternally proud of who I am and where I come from. I own it and wear it with pride. I am young, I am gay, I am black. I'm a true blue Territorian. Pape began as a queer rights activist and served on the town council where he was born and raised in Alice Springs, the town made famous in the celebrated drag queen movie The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. At 33, he's the youngest currently serving member of parliament. Pake delivered a speech this week in support of the Black Lives Matter movement. He decried systemic racism in government, saying, This must change, and that is what continues to motivate me. We need to do better. U.S. LGBTQ advocacy groups are slamming the Trump administration with another lawsuit, this one involving the planned rollback of health care protections for transgender people. The Health and Human Services Department announced the policy change two days before the June 15th Supreme Court queer employment rights ruling. The agency has confirmed that it still intends to eliminate the anti-trans discrimination protections instituted by the Obama administration under the Affordable Care Act. Trump's side wants a religious exemption that would permit any health care provider to claim that their faith forbids them from treating transgender patients. They would also remove bias bans based on sexual orientation and in reproductive care. Lambda Legal filed suit on June 22nd on behalf of a number of queer advocacy organizations. It charges the Trump administration with revising the rules with next to no legal, medical, or reasoned policy foundation, and contrary to the opinions of professional medical and public health organizations. It also cites the latest Supreme Court ruling that federal civil rights laws banning bias based on sex extend to sexual orientation and gender identity. A survey published this week by the Kaiser Family Foundation found an amazing 9 in 10 respondents in the U.S. expressing support for the High Court employment rights decision. A similarly large majority also said it should be illegal for health care providers to refuse to treat LGBTQ people.
Meanwhile, the Justice Department submitted a filing to the Supreme Court on June 25th asking for the total invalidation of the Affordable Care Act. Finally, former San Francisco Supervisor Harry Britt died in the city on June 24th. He was 82 and had been in declining health. Britt was appointed by then-San Francisco Mayor Dianne Feinstein after the November 1978 assassination of Harvey Milk. Britt grew up in Port Arthur, Texas, and followed the straight and narrow for a while. He got married in 1960 and became a Methodist minister, shepherding two congregations in Chicago. His marriage and his ministry both fell victim to the turbulent 1960s. Britt moved to San Francisco in 1972, where he finally came out and wound up becoming a protege of budding politician Harvey Milk. Milk named him as one of four acceptable candidates to replace him in an eerily prescient audio tape recorded before he was killed. Now Senator Feinstein and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi were among those offering tributes to Britt. He was hailed as a progressive trailblazer in his own right, including 14 years of service on the San Francisco Board of Supervisors. Longtime friend and former California Assembly member Tom Amiano told the Bay Area Reporter that if you look up unsung hero in the dictionary, you'll see a picture of Harry. In May 1979, former cop and supervisor Dan White infamously received a light sentence for assassinating Milk. Protesting queers and their allies were brutally assaulted by police officers outside San Francisco City Hall. It has now broken loose. Cops are now bashing heads. The people who had been protecting City Hall are now getting dragged away by police. Cops then converged on the heavily LGBT Castro district with billy clubs swinging. They came in tipping tables over, billy clubbing, trampling over people, saying, get the hell out. Harry Britt spoke to thousands of people the night after the White Knight riots at a previously planned birthday celebration for Harvey Milk. His words could almost have been spoken yesterday. Tonight, 15,000 people have gathered to demonstrate with their love that the spirit of Harvey Milk will always be alive in our city. And I sure as hell don't have to tell you that Harvey Milk's people do not have a damn thing to apologize to anybody for ever. Let no one believe that the step that we have taken is a step from nonviolence to violence. We have suffered too much for at the hands of violent people ever to go down that road. But let us say with our new strength that we are tired of dealing with pigs and that from now on, the people who would follow the spirit of Dan White are going to have to deal with us. That's News Wrap, global queer news with attitude, for the week ending June 27th, 2020. Follow the news in your area and around the world. An informed community is a strong community. News Wrap is usually recorded in the studios of KPFK Los Angeles, but we're recording remotely during the COVID-19 emergency. The news is written by Greg Gordon, edited by Lucia Chappelle, produced by Brian DeShazer, and brought to you by you. Help keep us in ears around the world at thiswayout.org, where you can also read the text of this newscast and much more. And you can listen to News Wrap each week by subscribing to our This Way Out Radio YouTube channel. For This Way Out, I'm Lucy Chappelle. Stay healthy. And I'm Christopher Gall. Stay safe. You have been listening to Queer Voices. 
Heard each Monday at 8 p.m. here on KPFT, a publicly funded Pacifica Network station. Queer Voices is produced live in Houston with recorded segments from This Way Out, which is produced at KPFK in Los Angeles. Queer Voices executive producer is Jack Valensky. This is listener-sponsored and commercial-free radio, KPFT, at 90.1 FM and worldwide via streaming audio from kpft.org. For Queer Voices, I'm Glenn Holt. best time to talk to your family about staying in touch during a disaster when floodwaters reach your door when wildfires are engulfing the edge of your neighborhood or an earthquake is destroying buildings when a tornado is tearing through town or a hurricane strikes or is the best time perhaps today during a disaster you may not be able to stay in touch with your family or friends as easily as you think and it's not always as simple as using your cell phone. That's why now is the time to take action. Go to ready.gov communicate and make your emergency plan today. Don't wait. Communicate. Brought to you by FEMA and the Ad Council. KPFT Houston. Half of the U.S.'s teachers will be eligible to retire over the next decade. Filling their shoes will be challenging since 9 of 10 top-tier students don't view teaching as a desirable profession. While the urgent need to fill teaching positions does create a labor crisis, it also presents an opportunity to transform K-12 education in America by recruiting our nation's brightest students to the profession. If you ever 